Thank you, David. Good evening. Uh, we're gathering together tonight to not only worship our God and Savior, but to remember and commemorate what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ on the day that he fulfilled the Father's will and he glorified the Father's name. This act was probably the greatest expression of love this world has ever known or ever will experience. What I'd like to do this evening is to just take a brief time to have a timeline of the events that led up to our Lord's crucifixion. It is by no means a complete list. I've tried my best to keep it into a chronological uh, event order. Most of the events we're all familiar with. Each one of them could probably be taken out and be a sermon unto themselves, but a brief statement or a phrase of it will serve as a reminder to us as of the recorded action or encounter that took place during our Lord's last week leading up to his crucifixion. These reminders will set a background to seven passages of scripture that we'll be looking at tonight. Now, Jesus' final week leading up to his crucifixion started off by his entry into Jerusalem, what we refer to as the triumphal entry. The celebration of a long-awaited king coming to deliver his people from bondage how appropriate that was during the Passover time, thinking about delivering his people from bondage. And during this time, Jesus first of all comes into Jerusalem and he curses a fig tree, and it withered. He cleansed the temple by driving out those who were buying and selling, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. The Sanhedrin challenged his authority, to which he answered them with several parables. The parable of the two sons that were told to go out and work in the vineyard. The question was posed back to them, which one truly obeyed? There's a parable of the landowner and the wicked vine growers who when the owner of the field sent his own son, they ended up killing him. And the parable of the marriage feast and the proper attire that was needed to attend it. Then we have Jesus' use of the tribute coin, the one that had Caesar's image on it. He used it to answer the question posed to him concerning the paying of a poll tax, after which he answered questions about marriage relationships that were posed to him by the Sadducees about what, what would be marriage like after the resurrection, which is an odd question for those Sadducees since they did not actually believe in the resurrection at all. And the answers given to the Pharisees was given to which was the greatest commandment of all. Then we see Jesus after this publicly characterizing and condemning them, the Pharisees, and warning them against the, by use of the repeated phrase by, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. A little after this, we have the observation of the widow's might being given in the temple. This is followed by the Olivet Discourse, which was given to his disciples, along with the parables of the ten virgins, the talents, and the coming day of judgment. Jesus foretells of the date of his crucifixion after this. We have then the anointing of Jesus, Jesus by Mary with the costly perfume at Simon's feast. Then we see Judas contracting to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And as uh, after that, they were preparing for the Passover to be made. The Passover is eaten. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. 
Jesus is, Judas is revealed at that table, and he leaves. He leaves the gathering. And Jesus warns about the desertion that would be coming and Peter's denials. Jesus then institutes the Lord's Supper. The upper room discourse is given. Jesus makes his intercessory prayer for those who would believe. And a hymn was sung, and they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. We see there Jesus in deep grief and anguish in the garden as he sweats drops of blood while praying to the Father. The disciples were unable to stay awake during this time when they were told to watch and pray and wait. And they fell asleep a number of times. Jesus finishes his time of prayer and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders along with the Roman soldiers come into the garden to arrest Jesus. Jesus during his arrest is betrayed with a kiss by Judas. And Jesus identifies himself to those who are coming to arrest him by using the words, I am. A statement to which his very statement of saying, I am, they fell back and they fell to the ground. Peter swings a sword and cuts off the ear of the right ear of, of Malchus, the high priest's slave. Jesus heals him. His disciples are scattered and flee. Jesus at this time is brought before Annas, the ex-high priest who was apparently still in good control of things, had a great deal of influence, and then over to Caiaphas, the acting high priest, who was actually the son-in-law of Annas. There's a Jewish trial was held. The whole council of the Sanhedrin was there, like, like our Supreme Court would be all gathered together. And John and Peter had followed this crowd. John was able to go into the court because he knew the high priest. Peter was allowed in because John spoke to the doorkeeper and said, you know, let this guy in too. We have Peter's denial of Jesus three times there and the cock crowing. The council condemns Jesus. Judas goes out and commits suicide. Jesus goes before Pilate. Pilate, learning that Jesus was a Galilean, which was Herod's jurisdiction, sends, him to, sends Jesus to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at this time. Herod was glad to see Jesus. He wanted to see some sort of miracle being done by him. He questioned Jesus at length, but Jesus kept silent. He was silent while his accusers fervently railed accusations against him. Herod treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate at this time tries Jesus, finds no guilt in him. He wants to punish him and release him, knowing that this time of the, during the feast he was ob obligated to at least one prisoner due to the feast. And he gives a choice basically to the people of what, Barabbas or Jesus? Pilate asks the crowd three times to release Jesus, finding no guilt that demanded death. Pilate gives in to the crowd's cries. They were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate goes out and washes his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. Jesus was, at this time, escorted out. He was tied to a post, exposing his back and whipped with leather strands attached to a wooden handle each strand having pieces of sharpened metal or sharpened pieces of bones attached to them. 
tearing the flesh off his back, cutting into his muscles. These beatings sometimes exposed even the inner organs of people, and some of the victims died from just the beatings. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They put a reed in his right hand to imitate a king's scepter. They embedded a crown of thorns into his head, and they spat on him and beat him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews, some of who knelt and bowed down before him, mocking him. Then we have the journey to the cross, journey to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Jesus attempts to carry his cross beam to the place of the execution, but was being so weak from the beatings and was so physically unable to continue, Simon of Cyrene was enlisted to carry the cross the rest of the way. And at Golgotha, Jesus refuses to take the wine and the myrrh before being nailed to the cross. And they crucified him between two criminals. All four of the Gospels give no description of the anguish of the crucifixion itself. No details are mentioned about it. They simply said, and they crucified him. They divided up his garments, and they hung a charge or an indictment over him on the cross that read, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. It was written in the common spoken language of the Hebrew people that day, which was basically Aramaic, along with Latin, and Greek, all the world could see and read. From noon to about the third hour, 3 p.m. that is, darkness fell over the land. And we have Christ on the cross. Let's open in prayer. Father, help us to remember, lest we forget Gethsemane, lest we forget thine agony and lest we forget thy love for us, Lord. Lead us to Calvary. Help us to remember. Help us to remember in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. While on the cross, it's recorded in the scriptures that Jesus spoke seven times. We'll take a short look at each one of these sayings. And as, you, as we're going through it, notice who Jesus is talking to. We know where it is. We know the time of year it is. We know it's during the Passover season. Uh, we, we know it's just Christ on the cross. But just notice whom Jesus is speaking to in each of the phrases because that kind of depicts what the meaning is behind the phrases. The first one I'd like to look at is in Luke 23, verse 34. And the notes just have the words of what Jesus said. I'll read a little bit before and after each one of them. So Luke 23, 34 says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Father, forgive them. We see the first statement recorded of Jesus is asking the Father for forgiveness to the very people who were crucifying him. And as the soldiers were casting lots, divide, dividing up his clothes amongst, them, amongst themselves, it appears that Jesus spoke these words. We see here how Jesus responded to the suffering, to the grief, to the tragedy, to the pain, 
to the injustice inflicted upon him. While suffering an excruciating death at the hands of cruel and deceitful men, he asks God the Father to forgive them. He prays for those who wronged him. The only person who ever walked the face of this earth who never sinned, who was completely innocent of any wrongdoing, while dying an unjust death at the hand of those who basically hated him, he speaks words of pity and praise for their pardon. Uh, This fulfilled the words of Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 12. It says, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And interceded for the transgressors. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they are doing. They knew what they did. They knew they were crucifying an innocent man. Pilate even washed his hands saying he found no wrongdoing in Jesus. The Jewish authorities knowingly used false witnesses and made false claims against him. But what they did not know, what they could not understand, was the enormity of what they were doing. They were crucifying their very Messiah. They were crucifying the Son of God, God the Son, the Lord of glory. Here we see Jesus praying for them, making it clear that God is willing to forgive sinners the worst of all sins. And he's willing to forgive you and me the worst of all our sins. The second statement from the cross is found in Luke 23, verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Again, the second statement is directed at one of the violent robbers who was being crucified alongside of Jesus. We are told that we're one on each side. The criminal may have known of Jesus' ministries, maybe his miracles, his reputation, maybe his teachings and some of his claims. It appears that in his dying moment, he had that repentant heart and believed that Jesus was his Savior, the Messiah. This criminal makes it the statement clear and he, as he's talking to the other criminal on the cross who was actually accusing Jesus and, and and, and, and speaking ill of Jesus. And he says to this criminal, he says, do, not, uh, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve in our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then we have, again, the second statement. Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is probably the clearest statement of salvation ever spoken. Today you shall be with me in paradise. 
What good works had this robber done? What religious sacrament was performed by him before his death? He did nothing that merited salvation. But by God's grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, he entered paradise to be with his Savior that very day. Jesus, during his suffering, was concerned and thought of others. Just as he did in this first statement, not only was Jesus bearing the wounds from his beatings and the torture and the crucifixion, he was bearing upon himself all the sins of people throughout the history that would, that would believe in him. Plus the wrath of God being poured about on him on that cross for those sins. Yet he heard and saw the heart of this repentant criminal who turned in faith to Jesus. And these words that Jesus spoke comforted him. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. May we in the midst of our own sufferings look to others around us who are also suffering to give them a little hope, to give them a little assurance of what can only be found in Jesus. The third statement, we flip over to John chapter 19, verse 27. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, that disciple took her into his own household. We see here standing by the cross of Jesus, there was his mother. His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, alongside of one disciple. They were close enough to hear his words of Jesus. In the verse before this, in 26, it says, When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own household. During Jesus' suffering, Jesus made practical preparations and care for others. He made sure his mother would be cared for. His mother, seeing her son crucified, suffering in such a way, must have been torturous beyond heartbreaking for her. If we remember about 33 years earlier than this scene, soon after Jesus' birth, he was brought into the temple for dedication. And upon seeing Jesus, we have recorded in Luke chapter 2 that Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. Speaking to Mary. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. This was the prophecy of Mary's pain and suffering that would take place, that was taking place now. And what pain Mary must have suffered seeing her son, her firstborn son, her son of blessing, conceived in her by the Holy Spirit, being beaten and whipped, his hands and feet nailed to a Roman cross, raised and dropped into a hole, possibly being dropped and the joints being possibly pulled apart each breath that he was taking causing excruciating pain just to breathe. And Mary is there 
watching Jesus suffering in front of her and being unable to do anything about it. But to watch, to cry, and to trust in God's unfolding purpose in front of her. Uh, Jesus said, woman, behold your son. He was not asking Mary to look at himself. But he was telling Mary to, to look at John, who is going to take care of her. He'll be your son now. And Jesus says to John, behold your mother. And, and notice how he addresses Mary. He addresses her as woman. Nowhere in scripture do we see Jesus calling Mary mother. And this is emphasizing a relationship between them that was more than a mother and son, but a sinner and savior. This relationship between them was much more than a physical relationship. It was a spiritual relationship. Jesus was Mary's needed savior. Fourth statement we see being said is from Matthew 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is actually saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every prayer of Jesus recorded in scriptures, Jesus calls God Father. Except here during this cry, God is pouring out his divine wrath on Christ. The son, feeling so completely forsaken, God was punishing his own son for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. Jesus, being the sin bearer for our sin, suffering the wrath of God at this time upon himself, and feeling the abandonment and despair resulting from this outpouring judgment. We think of the closeness within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Never was there an event in all of eternity like this one. Never was there a separation or a disagreement or an alienation between them. But Christ, the sinless one, now becomes sin for us. And in doing so, Christ suffered an eternity in hell for each and every one of us. He was sinless, but when he became sin for us, the sins of the world were transferred upon him. And he suffered the wrath of God for us, for each of those sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. No person in all of history has ever suffered like this. Never suffered like Jesus did. Many people have been crucified. There's estimated approximately 30,000 Jews were crucified in those days. But only one has ever suffered the full wrath of God upon himself. And not for anything that he did. He was sinless. But he was willing to suffer because mankind is sinful, full of sin and we are desperately wicked. 
The fifth statement we see from the cross is Jesus saying, or in, is in John 19, verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty, or I thirst. Jesus refused the earlier offer of wine that was mixed with myrrh that was offered to him at the time of the nailing of the cross. It was basically a, a painkiller, a small sedative that was not used to ease any of the pain, but it was actually to make the prisoners a little more compliant to being nailed. Took the kick out of them, maybe. But now hanging there for a length of time, suffering dehydration, he was given a sponge soaked in vinegar. It was lifted up to him on a branch or a stalk of a hyssop plant. Remember, the hyssop plant was used during the Passover ceremony. Jesus, the one who is the living water, is thirsty. Here we see the humanity of Jesus. His body ripped open. He bled. He felt pain. He was exhausted, and he thirsted. God incarnate, the God-man, creator of the universe, was thirsty. To fulfill the scriptures, Jesus said, I thirst. Psalm 69, 21 says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I thirst. To fulfill the scriptures, he said, I thirst. The sixth statement we have is also from John. John chapter 19, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Not I am finished. It is finished. The task that was given to Jesus was completed. It was fulfilled. The entire work of redemption was complete. And it sounds as almost it was said triumphantly, maybe. It is finished. The single Greek word that was translated here to us in these three words, it is finished, interesting enough, has been found on tax receipts after payment, meaning paid in full. It is finished. Jesus stayed on that cross not because he could not come down, as some of his onlookers taunted him to do, but because he would not come down until it was finished, complete. It is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit according to his and his father's timetable and plan. He refused to depart until all that was needed to be accomplished was accomplished, and it was finished. Nothing needs to be added to this work, this work of grace, and nothing can be added to it. Redemption comes by grace through faith. It is a gift, it is finished, and it is complete in Christ alone. 
The seventh and last that we'll be going over tonight is, is from the cross where Jesus spoke is in Luke 23, verses 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus verbally shouts this out and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last breath. He gave up his life. Now, usually victims of crucifixion died a much slower death. It usually took about three to four days of hanging there on a cross. People would walk by them on the streets and see the people still suffering for days on end. But on this occasion, being a high holy day, the Jews asked the Romans not to let the bodies hang on the on a high holy day. That is why the two robbers had their legs broken so that they would die a little quicker than normal. They could no longer push up on their feet to gasp a breath of air, and they basically died of asphyxiation. Their bodies were taken down before sunset. But Jesus, being in control of his own time to die, after completing and finishing the appointed task, yielded up his spirit to God. And not one of his bones were broken. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. No one has taken it away from me but I lay it down of my own initiative. Over the years, there's been controversy among some about who killed Jesus. Some argue that the Romans killed Jesus. Others argue that the, Jills, the Jews killed Jesus. And some will admit that you and I killed Jesus because it was for our sins we put him up there. As a side note, in the filming of the Passion of Christ, the producer Mel Gibson filmed his own left hand holding the nail that was to be driven into Jesus' hand. Symbolic gesture of, on, of his belief in telling the story of the passion that holds all humanity responsible for the death of Jesus. And according to People.com, Gibson said, I am the first in line for the culpability. I did it. We can understand and appreciate the imagery involved in all that. But the truth is, and we know and understand, that this was a divine plan of God all along. It was prophesied numerous times in the uh, earlier scriptures and throughout scriptures and even going back to the garden itself. But here, Jesus gave up his life, his spirit, into the Father's hands. He laid it down of his own. No one took his life from him. He gave it up willingly on his own into the Father's hand. And he breathed his last. May we also give all things into the Father's hands in our own lives each and every day. Our worries, our troubles, even our dying moments and our dying breaths. We don't have control of many of these things. But we do have a Heavenly Father who is 
absolutely sovereign, who is in control of all and who loves and cares for every one of us, caring so much that he said his son, who willingly died for you and me, and willingly paid the price, and it was paid in full. The greatest expression of love this world has ever known or will ever experience. Many events were not mentioned tonight. You know, the glance of Peter, from, the glance from Jesus at Peter when the cock crowed, Pilate's wife's admonition and warning to Pilate about the dream she had. The vile accusations of those passing by Jesus as he hung on the cross. The piercing of Jesus' side. The temple veil that was rent from the top to the bottom. The earthquakes, the rocks split, the tombs open. The centurion statement, truly this was the Son of God. The burial, the tomb, and the stone. As we all know, this piece of history does not end here. And most importantly, is what happened three days later. Jesus rose victoriously from the grave, and we serve a risen Savior. Let's prepare our hearts to share in the bread and the cup tonight, and doing this in remembrance of Jesus. And let's remember Jesus. Amen. Keith.